Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Well, welcome to all of you who are gathered with us here, as I said, both in person and online. It, it is certainly a privilege that we don't take for granted that God allows us to gather corporately in worshiping him in, in a variety of means, through music, through prayer, through worship, ultimately through the way we live our lives. And so that's why we're here this morning. And unfortunately, Pastor Joe could not be with us. He is not feeling well right now. And he called me Friday morning and asked me if uh, I could preach. And so here I am. And here you are. And we're going to continue this morning in our sermon series going through the Sermon on the Mount found primarily in Matthew's chapters 5 through 7. And um, last week, Joe began the series by teaching us about the gospel of the kingdom. And today, I want to continue to help set the context for Matthew's chapter five through seven, because they come in a context which is preceded by, guess what, Matthew's chapter one through four. And what Matthew does is he begins to lay out this message, this proof of Jesus Christ as king who's come to bring his kingdom to bear upon the world. In fact, one of the major themes of the Bible. In fact, let me, let me stop right now and apologize. Um, I did not have time to put together uh, a worksheet where you can fill in the blank, and, and I did not have time to put together any slides. So we're going to kind of go old school here today, and um, I would encourage you and challenge you to um, get a Bible. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be either a Bible under your seat or a Bible under the seat in front of you and to follow along this morning as we help to set the context for the Sermon on the Mount in Matthews uh, chapter 5 through 7. So this theme of the kingdom of God is one of the major themes throughout all of the scripture. In fact, there's a great theme that runs throughout the scripture of this cosmic battle between these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of this world that is ruled by Satan. And and we find this all the way throughout scripture. We're first introduced into this theme of this cosmic battle between these two kingdoms in Genesis chapter 3. We see Satan come to Adam and Eve and he tempts them to turn away from God's rule and reign over their life, living their life in his kingdom, and to do their own thing. And ultimately then to put themselves under the rule and reign of Satan in their life. But within Genesis chapter 3, God makes this incredible gospel promise. He says, the kingdom of this world will not have the last say. The kingdom of this world will not find ultimate victory because I will bring ultimately the seed of the woman to bear upon the world. And, and the Satan 
will bruise the um, heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will crush the head of that serpent, Satan. And so there's the introduction to this great cosmic battle between these two forces, these forces of evil versus the forces of good. And in, throughout scripture, we see this idea of this cosmic battle between these two kingdoms laid out in, in different ways. We see it talked about as the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. In fact, in Colossians chapter 1, it says, if you are truly a believer, truly a Christian, truly a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have been brought from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son. We also see this theme, this idea of uh, this battle between these two kingdoms laid out in the idea of this kingdom that is a kingdom of righteousness and peace and justice versus this kingdom, which is a kingdom of lies and oppression. Another way that we find this theme laid out throughout Scripture is this kingdom that brings blessing in life, the kingdom of God, versus this kingdom of the world, which brings death and destruction. So this whole idea of this battle between these two kingdoms is laid out in a variety of ways throughout Scripture. And our society has even played off of this theme in several ways. One of the things that I can think of is several of the popular movie series um, from recently. We have uh, the series of Star Wars where we have this, this kingdom of the dark side versus the kingdom of um, Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia and, and the force, which is the good kingdom. And so you, have, you see this cosmic battle taking place. Another popular uh, movie series where we see this theme play out is the Avengers series. We have Thanos and, and the forces of evil and their kingdom versus the kingdom of the Avengers and good. Well, I think for the most part, some of them are still, I think, debatable what, which side they're on. But, but you see this idea played out in society in, in a lot of different ways. And so what I want to do this morning, as I said, is I want to take us through the first four chapters of Matthew to help lay the context so that when Joe comes and and preaches on the Sermon on the Mount, we'll have a context in which to see and understand that. So if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, starting from the beginning here, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so what Matthew does here is he's got three distinct sections where he lays out this um, genealogy from Abraham to Jesus Christ. And he says this genealogy is separated by um, 14 generations, 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile in Babylon, and then another 14 generations after exile in Babylon to Jesus Christ. 
And Matthew is very purposeful in laying out this genealogy this way. It, it's so easy to be able to read through this and go, well, that's nice. I'm glad that he told me of all these descendants of Jesus. But Matthew has got an intent and a purpose in laying it out in this way. And so that's what I want to begin to talk about. So Matthew starts out with Abraham, and then we get down to verse 6, and it says, uh, let, me, let me actually go to verse 5, it says that Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. Why didn't Matthew just say that Jesse fathered David? He says specifically that it was King David that he fathered. Matthew does this on purpose because this brings to mind this Jewish audience that Matthew wrote this gospel to. Automatically, they're going to start thinking about this. They're going to start thinking about King David. And there was a promise made to King David that we find in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So I want us to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and see this promise that was made to King David. Let's go ahead and start 2 Samuel 7, verse 9. Now, the context for this is David has been established as king over all Israel. Israel has come into the promised land. They've defeated their enemies for the most part, not completely. They're living for the first time as a nation in peace. David builds this great house for himself, this incredible palace. And he says, I want to now build a house for God. Our, our God is living in this tabernacle or this tent that we've brought through the wilderness into the promised land. How is it that I live in this great palace and our God lives in this tent? Well, we know that God doesn't live in tents, but that was how they saw it as the people of Israel. And so 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting with verse 9, let me go ahead and read this. It says, I have been with you, God talking to David, I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you like the greatest on earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Man, what an incredible promise God has begun to give to David. Your kingdom is going to be this amazing kingdom. I'm going to defeat all your enemies. I'm going to give you rest. You will prosper in this kingdom. Then he goes on. He says, the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. Remember, David wanted to make a house for God. But now the tables have turned. God says, I'm going to make a house for you. This word house here really, truly should be translated household. God's not actually going to build a house for David. David already had this nice palace, as I said. He's going to build a household for David. Going on, uh, verse 12. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body 
and I will establish his kingdom. Well, that promise was answered in the immediate context through David's son Solomon, who took over for David as king of Israel, ruled and reigned, and the kingdom did prosper under Solomon for a time. Verse 13, he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. So this promise of God to David of this kingdom and the fact that he would bring his son to be king over this kingdom has both an immediate fulfillment in Solomon, but its ultimate and its full and final fulfillment, which is not easy to say, is found in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Because we know that Solomon did not sit on that throne and rule and reign over God's people forever. His was a temporary kingdom. His was a temporary kingship. But there is one to come who's a part of this promise from God that would establish his kingdom. He would come to rule and reign over God's people and his kingdom would be established forever. And that is the theme that Matthew is playing off of here. And the theme that Matthew is going to then carry out through the rest of his gospel. And so as we look at this genealogy, going back to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew is very purposeful in pointing out that Jesse fathered King David because it would have made them think about this incredible promise God had made to David. Then the next 14 generations in this genealogy, we see that it says here, the end of verse 6, David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. And then it goes on and talks about the genealogy all the way down to the time of exile in Babylon. And what this is talking about is the fact that although God had blessed the people of Israel, although that God had allowed their kingdom to prosper, first under David and then afterwards under Solomon, they, they turned away from God. They turned away from living under God's rule and reign, just like Adam and Eve had done before. And, and they turned to the gods of these other nations, little g gods, these idols, and began to worship them. And they turned away from God. And so, therefore, God brings his judgment upon his own people who had forsaken him, who had sinned greatly, we can't go into all the details, but read throughout the Old Testament prophets and you'll see the nation of Israel became a very wicked and evil people, turning away from their God. And so God brings his judgment to bear upon them. And ultimately, God uses the nation of Babylon to come and take the um, people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, to exile in Babylon as part of God's judgment upon them. And so things aren't looking so good for the Israelites at that point. They've got another nation ruling and reigning over them. But the genealogy doesn't stop there. 
So we have another 14 generations that Matthew lays out. And in verse 12, it says, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Sheltiel, down the line, and then we get to verse 16, says, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. And so this is very intentional, the way Matthew lays this out. Because remember, the nation of Israel was exiled in Babylon. The Babylonians were ruling and reigning over their lives. But God had promised to bring a king who would free them from their enemies. A king who then would rule and reign over them. Bring them to prosperity. Bring them to blessing. Free them so that they could live in peace. And so this third part of this genealogy is pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ is that one who had been promised. Jesus Christ is that king who is now bringing his kingdom to bear upon the earth. And so Matthew, in the way he lays out these three different sections of genealogy is incredibly intentional in that. He's got a purpose, and it's to point to the fact that Jesus Christ is that promised king, bringing that promised kingdom. But the Jews didn't get it. They thought that Jesus had come to restore the kingdom of Israel. If we go to Acts Chapter 1, this is shortly before Jesus ascends to heaven. I think Joe alluded to this uh, last week. He talked about it a little. Um, Jesus is teaching his disciples about the kingdom of heaven. And what did they do? They turned to him and they asked, Is now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? You see, they were thinking that God was going to restore them as a nation, as a geopolitical people and that they would receive this king who would rule and reign over Israel and life would be all good for them for the rest of eternity. But that's not the kingdom of God that God is presenting. That's not the kingdom of God or of heaven as Matthew talks about it that Matthew is presenting through his gospel here. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven where Jesus rules and reigns over all of those who will put their faith and trust in him that become a part of God's people, both Jews and Gentiles. That's the true promise. That's the true kingdom that had been prophesied about in the Old Testament, but they didn't get it. They were just thinking inwardly. They were thinking that it was all about them as the Jews, as the nation of Israel. And so Matthew throughout then, as I said, the first four chapters, but ultimately throughout the rest of his gospel, plays off of this idea of the promised king bringing his promised kingdom. And as we go, go on, we see here in um, chapter 1, we come down to verse 22. Verse 21, actually, let me start with that. We, I think many of us are familiar with this. We, we typically read this at Christmas time. It says, she, talking about Mary, will give birth to a son, talking about Jesus. And you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. 
Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. That prophet is Isaiah. And so then we have a quote from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And this is more than just a cute little Christmas quote. Something that we pull up at Christmas time and say, look, this is proof that this is talking about Jesus. Because you see, Matthew has an intent and purpose here to show that Jesus is that promised king, bringing his promised kingdom. And so it's far more than a Christmas quote. But the only way that we see that and understand that is by going back to Isaiah chapter 7 and looking at Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 in its context looking at what comes before that verse looking at what comes after that verse to understand why Matthew is going back to this Old Testament passage and so we see that in Isaiah chapter 7 that God promises Judah He will protect them from their enemies if only they will trust in him. You see, what was going on there in Isaiah 7 is that um, at this point in history, the nation of Israel had been split in two. And there were 10 northern tribes, which were called um, the people of Israel. And there were two southern tribes, which were called the people of Judah. And... Ten northern tribes, their king, got together with the king of Assyria and they planned to attack the people of Judah, the two tribes of the southern part of Israel. And so the king of Judah at that time is King Ahaz and he becomes very fearful. These great forces are going to come upon us. They're going to defeat us. We will become their slaves. We'll become defeated by them. And God gives this incredible promise in Isaiah 7 saying, trust in me. I will protect you from your enemies. I will protect you from this attack that's that's going to come upon you. Just turn to me and trust in me. And God says to Ahaz, Ask of me a sign so that you will know that what I say is true. And Ahaz then, in response to God, says, Oh no, it is not for me to ask of a sign from you, God. So God steps in and says, I will give you a sign. That if you trust in me, I will protect you from these enemies that are about to come upon you. And so we see this incredible verse here, like I said, that we typically use at Christmas time, has a context in which it is laid out in the Old Testament, and we see the reason why Matthew is now using it here in the New Testament in chapter one of his gospel, because that promise to trust in God, that he would save them from their enemies, ultimately is meant to point to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus will save his people from their enemies when they put their trust in him. And that's why Matthew is quoting that here in chapter one of his gospel. 
and time won't allow us to go through all the Old Testament quotes here. Just contained in Matthew chapter 1 through 4, we see quote after quote from the Old Testament. But each and every one of those Old Testament passages and verses that are quoted are quoted with the intent to point out that God is bringing his promised king. God is bringing his promised kingdom to bear on the kingdom of the world in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And so I challenge you, I encourage you to take the time and read through those first four chapters of Matthew. To take a look at those Old Testament quotes. Find out where they're quoted from in the Old Testament. Go and do the hard work of reading a couple chapters beforehand, reading a couple chapters afterhand to see the context and then to come to an understanding of why that New Testament author, in this case Matthew, is quoting that verse from the Old Testament. It's not there just by random. It's there with a purpose because Matthew is presenting proof after proof after proof. Some through quoting the Old Testament. Um, and in other means as well. So we have this idea of this kingdom that God is going to bring to bear through his king. And as we move on into chapter 2, verses of Matthew, verses 1 and 2 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? You see, we have more kingdom language. Somehow, these wise men from the east, either from having the Old Testament scriptures and reading them, or having been told either by a person or even directly from God, somehow they came to understand that this one who was born in this miraculous way to this virgin, but in an uneventful way, in this manger, is born king of the Jews. There's that kingdom language. God is bringing this, his promise to fruition. In and through the birth of Jesus, he is king, not just of the Jews, as I said, but of all who will put their faith and trust in him. And so, Matthew continues to lay out further proof and evidence of this idea of God bringing his kingdom to bear through his king. Then we go down, um, and we have this Old Testament quote in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. It's a quote from Micah 5.2. Like I say, time won't allow us to actually take a look at that, but it's purposeful. Go back, look at it see it in its context, and then come back to Matthew 2 and see why he's using that. One of the things that you'll see as you read through these first four chapters is Matthew uses a word over and over again. It's the word fulfill, or he uses it as the word fulfilled. What is, what is it that's being fulfilled? Speaking back to the prophets, who had prophesied what would happen through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit giving them this message from God, what is being fulfilled is that God is now bringing his king, 
who will bring his kingdom to bear. And so as you see that word fulfill or fulfill come up over and over again through the first four chapters of Matthew, that is what's being fulfilled. God's promise to bring this king with his kingdom. I know you're probably getting tired of me saying that, but that's what's going on here. That's what's happening in these first four chapters. Like I said, throughout the rest of the gospel here. So Jesus is born. We go down to chapter 2, verse 16, and we see a different scene here now. It says, Then Herod, when he realized he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. In keeping with the time, he had learned from the wise men that Jesus was born. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And then we have this quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Once again, very purposeful. This points back to a time following the Jews' exile in Babylon. In God's promise not to bring them just back to their land, but to one day bring them into prosperity and blessing. But you won't know that until you turn back to Jeremiah and read chapter 31. Maybe read some of what comes before that and what comes after that. But Matthew is very, very intentful in quoting Jeremiah here, giving further proof and evidence to this idea that God is bringing in and through Jesus his promised king and his promised kingdom. Moving on. For time's sake, down to chapter 3, we see a different character come on the scene here, and that's the character of John the Baptist, who is actually Jesus' cousin. And in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. See this additional kingdom language that's being used here. And John is saying that in and through Jesus, the kingdom of heaven has come near. A lot of translations will say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we have this quote from Isaiah 40. Why is Matthew quoting Isaiah 40 here in reference to John the Baptist? Because that's within the context of God bringing comfort to Israel, even though he had promised they would be exiled to Babylon. So we, Isaiah 39, we don't have time to turn there, but I challenge you to go back and see what's going on. In Isaiah 39, God is saying, I'm bringing judgment upon my people. In, in the days to come, he says, they will be exiled in Babylon. Then you turn to the very next chapter, chapter 40, and it begins with comfort, comfort my people. They will not remain as exiles forever in the land of Babylon because I will set them free. They will be allowed to come back to their own land. All of that pointing to this time when God would send Jesus to truly set them free to truly bring them out from the rule and reign of those who were oppressing them. 
And so that's why Jeremiah 31 is quoted there. Isaiah 40, excuse me, is quoted there. We move down to verse 11 of chapter 3. John speaking here says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. This is in reference to Jesus. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We're going to talk a little bit about what that meant to the Jews. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. In verse 13, we see this happening. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? Jesus answered him, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. Then look what happens next. Very important. Verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heaven suddenly opened for him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down upon him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now this whole idea of baptism had a a very significant meaning to the Jews, this audience that Matthew wrote his gospel to. We're not going to go into detail on that. But what's even more important is this idea of the Spirit of God coming down upon Jesus. And what we see in that is God anointing Jesus as his king. You see, all the kings that were put into place throughout the Old Testament and and to this point as well were always anointed with oil. And that showed that this is a a special responsibility that they were given. They were set apart to um, carry out this responsibility to rule and reign over their people. And now here in the giving of the Spirit coming upon Jesus, God is saying, I'm anointing him as my king, the one that I promised to send. And so that's what's going on here. But the coming of the Holy Spirit also had added meaning for the people of Israel. Because back in the Old Testament, it had been prophesied that during the end time for the Jews, when God would send his spirit, he would also send his king along with that spirit. And that king, through God's spirit, would rule and reign in power over all his enemies. And so, this Jewish audience is thinking, there's the spirit. Maybe this is the end time. Maybe this is the king that God has promised. What were they thinking? He's going to bring the nation of Israel back to prominence. But that's not what God is saying here. But the idea of the spirit coming upon Jesus is incredibly significant. And Matthew is using it with this intent to prove that point. 
Then we come to chapter 4, verse 1. And it says here in verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So here we have this picture of this cosmic battle going on. The, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the world and being ruled by the ruler of the world, the devil. And the devil comes to Jesus to tempt him. And we see these three different temptations that take place where the devil is tempting Jesus. And in this first temptation, it says Jesus has fasted 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungry. Yeah. I suppose he was after not eating 40 days and 40 nights. And what does Satan do? He tempts him. He says, you can, turn these, you can tell these stones to turn into bread and, and you can have food. But what's going on here through these three temptations is that Jesus is beginning to live out before the people what it looks like to live in the kingdom. And Jesus shows through this first temptation and the answer that he gives Satan uh, found in verse 4 says it is written man must not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God and that's a quote from Deuteronomy 8.3 but what Jesus is showing in living out the kingdom life is that the kingdom life is lived out by trusting that God will provide for you Jesus is demonstrating the kingdom life, showing that he's actually living it out as king of this kingdom. And the first thing he shows is that God, living in the kingdom requires us to trust that God will provide for us. Then we come to this next temptation. And in this temptation, in verse 5, it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, and then he quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12. And we get down to verse 7, and Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. And what we see here Jesus demonstrating and living out is the idea that living in the kingdom of God means trusting that God will protect you. So first we see living in the kingdom of God requires that you trust that God will provide for you. Now we see this idea of living in the kingdom of God. Jesus demonstrating that you need to trust that God will protect you. Did God protect Jesus? Yeah, for a time, for 33 years. But then Jesus went to the cross. Where was God at that time? Was God protecting him? Didn't look like it, did it? No, but it was all part of God's plan. So when we say that if you trust in God to protect you, that may not always mean that things go well for you. That you'll be healthy and happy. It may mean that you will have to go through suffering. It may even mean that you'll have to give your life as you're trusting in God. That's what Jesus is showing here. We'll talk about that as we go on a little bit here. And then we come to this third temptation found in verse 8 of Matthew chapter 4. And it says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain 
and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. And so the next thing that Jesus shows in what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God is that you will worship God alone. You will turn from worshiping these idols, these things in life and turn to worshiping God alone. And looking at Romans chapter 1, one of the charges that Paul brings upon all mankind is that all have turned away from God. All have turned from worshiping God as their creator, and they have turned to worshiping creation, the things that God created. And we're just as guilty of that. We worship created things all the time, whether they be houses or cars or clothes, and I could go on and on. Living in the kingdom of God, what does it look like? It looks like worshiping God alone, turning from worshiping these other things that are just created things, these idols which are not really God's at all, as God spells it out in the prophet's. Moving on, in chapter 4, we see another quote here from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Time won't allow us to go into that, but it's Matthew giving further proof and evidence to the fact that Jesus is this promised king, bringing this promised kingdom. Then as we move down here in chapter 4, we see this scene where Jesus is walking along and he chooses some to be his disciples and calls them to follow him. To leave what they were doing, leave their livelihood, their work, and to follow him. And we see throughout the rest of the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus has his disciples with him, living life with him day in and day out for the next three years. And what they're doing is they're learning from Jesus about him being the king that God promised. They're learning about this kingdom that he's bringing to bear upon the world. And so that brings us here to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And what is Jesus teaching them? I am the king, and I determine what my kingdom looks like. And my kingdom is not a matter of outward, supposed obedience. My kingdom involves true obedience from the heart. That's the big message through Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount. Joe will explain that in far greater detail. But the Gospel of Matthew doesn't stop there. We see next that even Matthew himself is chosen by Jesus to be one of his disciples. He calls Matthew to leave his um, job as a tax collector and follow him. So the one who wrote this has a very personal experience with all that's going on here. And Matthew leaves what he was doing as a tax collector, becomes one of Jesus' disciples, and follows him for the next three years. And then we see 
continued evidence and proof that Matthew gives throughout the rest of the gospel. We, we see these scenes of Jesus establishing his authority. In fact, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, in other words, when he had finished the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? It says, because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes, not like their religious leaders. So we see Jesus teaching with authority. But then we see these different scenarios, one where Jesus is out on the Sea of Galilee in, in a boat with his disciples. This incredible storm comes up. The disciples are fearful, and Jesus calms the wind and the waves. What do the disciples say? They say, what kind of man is this? But Jesus is demonstrating his authority over nature. We see another scene come up where, many scenes actually, where Jesus is going about healing people from various kinds of diseases and sicknesses, making the lame walk, healing the eyes of the blind so that they could see, healing a variety of different um, diseases and sicknesses, demonstrating his authority to heal and to make whole again. We see in another scene, Jesus driving demons out of these demon-possessed men. What is Jesus doing there? He's demonstrating his authority over the demonic world. Proof after proof, evidence after evidence that this is that promised king. He is bringing his promised kingdom. Then later on in the Gospel of Matthew, we see a lot of parables. And how do almost every one of those parables start? The kingdom of heaven is like... And then Jesus uses symbolic, symbolic language, uses many metaphors to show his disciples what the kingdom of heaven is like. Giving further proof and evidence that what Matthew is laying out here is all to show that this one, Jesus, is that promised king, bringing his promised kingdom. We go on a little bit further in the gospel of Matthew and we see something that completely confounds Jesus' disciples. Because they're beginning to believe, could this be the one? Could this be the king that's going to come and restore the nation of Israel? We'll put our hope in him. He's going to do it. The time is now. But what does Jesus begin to teach them? He begins to teach them, I'm going to have to go to the cross and die. And in their minds, they're thinking, hold on, the king just told us that he's going to go to the cross and die? Isn't he going to bring the kingdom back to Israel? It didn't make sense to them. And so they're confused. They don't understand it. But Jesus is showing that the way that was always intended for Jesus to defeat his enemies and the enemies of the disciples was through the cross, through 
his death on the cross. This is the king who came to serve his people and to die for them. They didn't get it. They think our hopes are dashed. We were hoping this would be the one who would bring the kingdom of Israel back to earth for all of eternity. Now he goes to the cross and dies. But fortunately, the gospel doesn't end there. Because we go on, and three days later, after Jesus is put in the tomb, he's miraculously resurrected to life again. And Jesus is demonstrating there, and Matthew records this account to show that Jesus defeats not only his enemies, but he defeats the greatest enemy that we know, that of death. The disciples have hope again. He's defeated the greatest enemy that could come upon us, in their mind at least, that enemy of death. And so Matthew continues to show this great king bringing his kingdom to bear upon the kingdom of the world. Then Jesus, being alive for a period of time before he ascends back to heaven, it says he spent time with his disciples continuing to teach them about the kingdom of heaven. So what does all this mean for us? Well, it means the same thing it meant for his disciples. Just as they spent time with Jesus and learned from him, about him being the king who has come to rule and reign over his people in every area of their life. It means that we too, if we're truly disciples of Jesus Christ, need to spend time with Jesus, learning more about him as king who has come to rule and reign over every area of our lives. And the blessings that come along with that. But you see, shortly before Jesus ascended back to his father, he gave his disciples a commission. He said, I am going to send you. Now, I will be leaving, going back to my father, but I'm going to send you out as my kingdom representatives. And you will take this message of the gospel of Jesus as king, bringing this kingdom first to Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. And just as Jesus called his disciples to be his kingdom representatives, to take this great message out throughout the world, what does that mean for us? We too, as Jesus' disciples, are to take this message to our neighbors, to our city, to our state, to our nation, to our world. But that's not the only thing that Jesus taught them. Jesus taught them that living in the kingdom of, the, of God looks different than living in the kingdom of the world. Because you see, if you're truly living in the kingdom of God, your life is going to look different than those who are living around you in the kingdom of the world. And so Jesus' disciples are called to live in a distinct way, a way that contrasts those who are living in the kingdom of the world. And they do that. Take a look at the book of Acts. 
this community of believers that starts out as a small community of disciples begins to live in a distinct way under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. They take that message of the kingdom out and God blesses that and adds thousands upon thousands to their believing community of disciples. What does that mean for us? We're called to live in a distinct way as well. We're called to be a contrast community to the communities around us. Although while we are called to live in this world, in this culture, we are also called to live in this world, in this culture, in a way that shows that Jesus is ruling and reigning in our lives. We all know that we don't do that perfectly. But little by little, we are to show that God, through Jesus, is ruling and reigning over every area of our life. That's what it means for us. And so this idea of the kingdom and the incredible king who has brought it with him as we go into the Sermon on the Mount, that sets the context for the Sermon on the Mount. And so that gives us a greater understanding of what um, Jesus is going to be teaching in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And so I, I hope you find this as helpful and beneficial as we begin to prepare to go into the Sermon on the Mount. But I hope this, you find this also challenging in your life. And we need to be prepared to share this message of the king and his kingdom. A couple days ago, I had one of my next-door neighbors come to me. He said, Dave, I need to talk with you. He said, my wife is 40 years old. She's never smoked a day in her life, but she's just been diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. He said, Dave, we've been talking. We really think we need to turn to God. We need to know more about God. Dave, will you take the time here to get together with me and to get into God's word and teach us more about God? Well, guess what? I need to be prepared. I need to be prepared to share this message with my neighbor. One of the reasons that I'm so passionate about global missions is not just because I'm the missions pastor here, but because we have the incredible privilege of taking this message to those who have never heard it. We partner with a church um, in Ambato, Ecuador. Several of you have been there. We take teams to go and partner with this church. And what we're doing is we're, we're going into this neighboring town called Cairo, Q-U-E-R-O, and in Cairo, there are no evangelical churches. There's a big, beautiful Catholic church, cathedral there, but there are no evangelical churches. And there are a people there living in that town and dying in that town that unless someone takes them this message, the message of the king and his kingdom, they will live and die being a part of the kingdom of this world forever and ever. We partner with a ministry in Medellin, Colombia with this missionary who has begun this crisis pregnancy center, helping pregnant young women off of the streets, giving them a place to live, 
helping them to learn biblical truth, teaching them practical skills so that they can eventually go back out to the street, not as a pregnant woman living on the street, but as a mom who has had a healthy baby and now um, has had their life changed. Uh, A little while back, we showed a picture of seven of these women from Esther's house who had come to know Jesus Christ as their King and Lord and Savior, and they were baptized. Why do we partner with that ministry? Because that's kingdom work. We partner with a church in eastern Cuba who is in the process of planting a church in the mountains where there is no other church taking this message of the king and his kingdom to those who don't know this message so that they too can have this opportunity to know Jesus as king and come into his kingdom. That's why we do missions, because of this message. Let me pray. Father God, we, we thank you. We thank you for this gospel message that you have given us in and through the gospel of Matthew and and the other gospels, this message that is actually even rooted and told in in the Old Testament. And, And my prayer for us as the family of River Bluff is that we would take this message to heart, that the Holy Spirit would do a sure work in our hearts and minds to convince us of the truth of this message, that we would see Jesus as the king who has come to rule and reign over our lives if we will put our trust in him. And then we can enter into his kingdom, a kingdom of peace and justice and truth and righteousness, a good and great kingdom. And I pray that we would take this message, this gospel message, and share it with those who God has given us opportunity with. And I pray also, Father, that we as the family of River Bluff would begin living in a way that is distinct and as a contrast to the communities of the world around us. So this is my prayer for us as the family of River Bluff, Father. Only you can do this work in us and through us. And so we pray that you would do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.